Welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, we have serial entrepreneur Paul Barron joining us. Paul is founder and chief executive officer at Wall Printing USA. So we'll be focusing our attention on franchising and entrepreneurship today. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let me just start off just by correcting one thing that you said, um, and that yeah. is that this isn't about franchising, although I do have 15 years it back in my story of franchising experience, but my current venture is what we call in the industry a business opportunity. We create businesses for people using our technology, our innovative wall printing and floor printing machines, but we don't do it under a franchise system. We don't reach into our customers' pockets for revenue. We don't require them to call themselves the wall printer. They create their own brand or already have their own company, and we just use our machines to help them gain revenue by adding digital art to any wall, wall and floor. But that's not why you called. <laughs> that is a wonderful extension of the model. That That, that, is, that, is, uh, that is fantastic. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'd just like to point out before the show, Paul and I were talking, and what you're seeing behind him, that, uh, that beautiful picture that looks like uh, you're looking out onto what the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. Uh, that is the product of the wall printer that uh, Paul has developed. So, oh, thank you, Andy. Very, yeah, very my cool. my office staff was not nice enough to give me a window in my office, so I had to go ahead and wall paint one. Uh, but that <laughs> but that is what it is. My my building is a concrete building. This is cinder block walls, and the wall printer yeah. prints on any kind of a surface. So that is what that is. That is fantastic. Uh, Paul, uh, tell our listeners your story. Well, uh, I'm 72 years old, and so it's a long story, um, and we don't have to go back to Paul was born at a very young age. Um, but the journey started, I guess, um, after college. Uh, during college, I strung tennis rackets um, to supplement the good graces of my parents who funded my college education, um, and to supplement that with what spending money I wanted, I I needed to get a job, and I was a tennis player and still am at this age. The package isn't quite what it used to be, but I'm still a very competitive player um, at my age, and uh, I've played tennis all my life and swam. Those are my two sports. And so in college, to uh, make some money, I was a captain of our tennis team, and I uh, also strung tennis rackets for the athletic department. And it was a venture um, that gained a very nice following for me. Um, I was good at what I did. People liked it, people paid for it, uh, but that wasn't what I was uh, having an education leading to. Um, I always wanted to be a mathematics teacher. My degree is in mathematics. Um, I was uh, computer science also, uh, back in days when computer science was just beginning in the 70s, um, yep. but uh, primarily mathematics and education minor. And so what I wanted to do was teach mathematics. That's what I, uh, that was gonna be my first job and was my first job. When I graduated, I became a teacher um, I had a friend who was, I played tennis with, who was out of work at the time, and uh, he was looking for something to do. And I said, well, you know, I'm launching my personal journey um, as a teacher. Um, while I don't have the time to devote to uh, an outside interest, um, I always thought that what I experienced in college stringing tennis rackets could become 
a, uh, a vocation, perhaps a retail store. The small town where I went to college, uh, which was part of the State University of New York at New Paltz, uh, a nice upstate New York town in the Hudson Valley, uh, did not have any kind of sporting goods store or anything like that. So I said to my friend, why don't we open up a little tennis shop, uh, a little sporting goods store? Um, you run it, me, I'll continue to string rackets for people as they need it strung. And we'll do that in, in the, um, I'll do that in the evenings, but you run the store and the retail aspects. And so he was content to do that. We put our heads and a little bit of money together and we uh, rented a space downtown and uh, we opened up the store. Um, I really got fascinated by all the aspects of the retail and the customer relationships and all of that kind of um, aspect of the business that he was engaged with. Um, and that kind of dragged me into it on the weekends and, and when I was available. Um, and I was spending more and more time devoted to that venture. And it was succeeding. Uh, we actually increased uh, to a second and then a third store um, over the first couple of years. Um, and we had these three shops running. I was devoting more time to it. I was taking some sick days off from my teaching responsibilities and devoting that to this business venture. Um, and in my third year, which was the tenure year for teaching, my department chairman gave me an ultimatum and he said, Paul, look, you're a great teacher, um, but we see that you have outside business interests now. Um, you really have to make a decision where your career is going. And understand this was three years out of college. I'm still you know, 22 years old um, and I really didn't know where my career was going. Um, I did enjoy teaching, but I will say that I didn't like a lot of the, uh, the administration. Uh, the activities beyond just the classroom interaction with the students. Love teaching, and if it wasn't for parents and administration, I might very well be a teacher today, 50 years later. Um, but my decision was really pretty quick. He said, we'll give you tenure if you give up your tenor shops, um, but otherwise you really have to make a decision. So I made the decision and I devoted my efforts to the tenor shops and I quit teaching. Um, that started the journey. And uh, well, I guess, the three years of the tennis shops really started the journey, but for myself as an active participant. Um, so the, the, the shops continued to flourish for another couple of years. And then I was approached by somebody um, who was a family friend who wanted me to come work for them. And uh, they had a jewelry factory and it was a, a very old family business, a very successful business on Long Island. Um, his son was coming into the business and he asked my mother, who was the bookkeeper for this company, um, hey, I understand Paul is doing very well with his business, upstate New York, would he have any interest in coming to work for me? So my mother said, well, you'll have to ask Paul that. And so um, he gave me the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse. And um, I sold my interest in the tennis shops to my partner. Um, and then I went, I relocated to Long Island and I went to work as a sales and operations manager for this this manufacturing and distribution wholesale company. Um, didn't know anything about it. I kind of learned on the job. Two weeks of the month, I was um, out on the road selling what their products were. Two weeks, I was back in the factory learning about order taking, um, somewhat uh, you know, customer support um, and manufacturing uh, and distribution, inventory, those types of things that really were an extension of what I was doing on a much smaller scale in my sporting goods stores. And it was very good. I was making some really good money. I was still in my 20s, living large on, on a beach condo on Long Island. Uh, very happy. Um, had a good life. And uh, Christmas came around after uh, the first year. And I received a $1,000 bonus check uh, because of the efforts that I had put in for the sales that I brought into the company. 
I was as happy as could be because I did make a great salary. And remember, this is the 70s where $1,000 really was something. Um, right. And so, uh, so I was very appreciative. And I said to my mother, um, who was still the bookkeeper for the company, I said, I'm really, really happy I got a $1,000 bonus check at Christmas. And he goes, and she said to me, he says, well, Paul, you know, you've done a really good job with the sales end of things. And it goes, the two owners each wrote themselves a check for $25,000 um, as a result of the, the sales that you brought in. So the next Monday, I walked into the office of the owner and I said, look, I really enjoy being here. I'm learning a lot. I really appreciate it. It's a great job. You're paying me very well. And I go, but I think I deserve a raise. Um, and so uh, he said to me something that carried me through to this day. And I passed through to all the people that have worked for me since in some of the story that I'll share with you and your audience that can tolerate listening to this. Um, but uh, he said to me, he said, Paul, listen, when you worked for me, and you do a good job, I'll make sure that you're paid better than anybody else will pay you. But I will tell you this, if you don't work for yourself and you don't take the risks, then you will never get paid what you think you're worth. Yeah. That, I took that to heart. I thought about it for about 15 seconds and I quit. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and, and with that said, now I, I'm not totally stupid. I didn't just walk away from something that was a very lucrative opportunity that I was given, but I did feel that I had reached a, a level of competency that I was worth more than this. And a competitor of his actually had offered me a job to come work for them and only do the sales and custom relations part of thing. None of the factory stuff, which I really didn't like that much. Um, and none of the order um, processing and any of the administrative stuff again, just like for my teacher. Um, I really liked dealing with the customers, um, taking them out, learning what their needs were, uh, learning if my products were really a solution to their problems, um, and, and engaging them on that level. And so I was able to work two weeks out of the month, making more money than I made in the four weeks uh, that I worked at the other company. So I was very happy. I moved back upstate to where my tennis shops were. I wasn't involved in the tennis shops anymore, but I just loved the area in the Hudson Valley, New York. So I moved back up there. I bought a house, um, and life went on. Um, working two weeks out of the month. I was saving quite a bit of money. I had another friend. And, I, and I, tell, I tell these parts of the story with my friend in the tennis shops and now my friend who I entered into the restaurant business with at this stage because I firmly do believe in partnerships. Um, I believe that if you have the right partner and you're on the same wavelength and your expectations are met from each other's contributions, whether that be... Um, the three things I think are important to any entrepreneurial or any business venture, those three things are time, talent, and treasure. Um, if you have the time to devote to something, if you have the talent to do it well, and if you have the treasure, the financial capital, that will make it happen if finances are needed, which most of the time there are to some extent, even if it's just feeding yourself. Um, but if you have those three elements, now you figure out, do you want to do this on your own? Do you want to do it with other people? Do you want to do it by working for somebody or what? So at this point in my life, I had another friend who was involved with a college bar. He didn't like his partner that he had, um, who was involved in some things that we don't need to talk about here. Um, but I said to him, I said, listen, if you can get your partner to buy you out, um, I've got some money saved aside. Um, I've just spent two years whining and dining people on this jewelry sales job. Um, I know a lot about restaurants. I know enough that I don't know how to be in the business, but I think it's a very glamorous business. I think you know a lot about that business. Um, if this is something you really want to do to migrate from the college bar kind of business, uh, the pub atmosphere, to an upscale seafood restaurant, steakhouse, 
which is what he dreamt about having. Um, let's see if we can do this together. I'll contribute some money. I've got my math skills. I could deal with the order taking and the vendors and those types of relationships. Um, and you deal with all the food stuff and, you know, the cooks and the, and the management of the people and all the things I don't like to do, the waiters, the waitresses and the staff and all that kind of stuff. And he said, and if we can get along and do this, well, Andy, we spent a full year um, because we, we weren't both so blind to the fact that here I was somebody who knew nothing about the restaurant business. And he was somebody who did need some financial backing and did need some of the things he didn't like to do in a partner. And so we spent a year. And since our roots were playing tennis to each, with each other, which is all we knew about each other and liked about each other. Andy, I spent a full year doing this. We woke up in the morning. We played tennis. We went out for lunch at a restaurant. In the afternoon, we played tennis. In the after our afternoon activity was over, we picked another restaurant. We went for dinner. For a full year, we went pretty much five days a week at least to five different restaurants for lunch, five different restaurants for dinner. Not because we were so gluttonous um, at the time, but because we wanted to see two things. Number one, do we have the ability to be in business and, and make that um, cross that bridge from friendship to business? because that's often a, a bridge that should not be crossed. Um, and so we wanted to know if, if that's something that we could do together and still retain our friendship, which was important to us. And then we wanted to know, do we both want to invest in the ideas and the expectations of one another? Because whether you're just selling something to somebody or whether you're getting into business with somebody, you have to always have and set expectations. And hopefully you always exceed them both for yourself and for your partners, for your employees, for your customers. Um, so that was really important to us. So at the end of the year, we came to the conclusion, yes, we could do this. We decided on the menu we wanted. We decided on the place we wanted to buy a building to convert to a restaurant, um, what the restaurant was going to look like, what the menu was going to be, who we wanted to hire. Um, everything really involved in creating this restaurant. Um, now I'll fast forward 12 years. Uh, that was in 1979. I'm very proud of the fact that um, here we are. Um, so I'm 79 to 23, if my math skills are still okay. Um, we're talking 44 years later. Um, 44 years later, that restaurant is still open, still nice. successful, still with the same menu that I had. I got out of it in 1990. I was in it for about 12 years, um, and I sold it to my partner at the time. Um, and I can tell you why, because the journey continues. But after 12 years, it, was, it really was running without me. My partner was the whole food guy and the place was running under his um, control and under his capabilities. Uh, it didn't need me anymore. Um, I was visiting my parents who had since retired and moved to Florida, um, playing tennis down there. And so um, I sold out my interest to the, in the restaurant to my partner and I relocated to Florida in 1990, 1991. Um, our friendship was still intact. Um, that was not an issue. Um, he knew it was time for me to go on and he was happy to have control of the place himself. And so I moved down to Florida. Now, so, are you, so, Paul, I, so, so let, let, let's just pause there because we, we've got a lot more questions, uh, to, to get through here. Uh, there, there are so many lessons for our listeners. I, I just, I wanted that uh, that, that beginning part of your story, uh, to go on, you did such a fantastic job. I'd like to, you know, have our listeners think about all of the nuggets, uh, that, that were, that, that were in there, understand 
your your customer, uh, understand your business partners, uh, you know, understand your 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 product. It, it was it that was you know yes you were telling your story but at the same time you're you're teaching our listeners uh, a whole lot of really valuable uh valuable items uh we've only got 30 minutes today so <laughs> let so so let's so, skip ahead let's skip I'll, ahead I'll fast forward a little bit but you yeah. in, you made an introduction to the really the next part of the journey which is really important and not to be overlooked you sure. talked about understanding your customer and understanding your market yep. um so i gave you a whole series here of three ventures or four ventures that were, or jobs that were very successful on this path. I don't want your audience for a moment, and I'll quickly um, let you know that that moment is now up. I don't want your, your audience to think that my life or anybody's entrepreneurial journey is going to be a trajectory, the proverbial hockey stick, where everything just increases. So here I am in Florida, figuring out what does Paul want to do when he grows up? just sold a restaurant, just uh, I'm downplaying tennis, but my personality, I've got to be doing something. I figured, well, I just had a really good run of 12 years in a restaurant business. I'm going to open up a restaurant here in Florida. Well, let's fast forward here as you would like to do and as I would like to do, because this chapter, which lasted one year, I what I made in 12 years in New York, I lost in one year in Florida uh, to the point that I was put into bankruptcy. I lost everything I had. Um, everything that some friends had invested in with me when I opened up a restaurant that I tried to copy what I did in New York and Florida. It failed miserably uh, because I didn't really understand the market. I, I understood the business, but I didn't understand the market. And so it was a totally different audience. It really wasn't receptive, uh, even though we got great reviews on the food and on the the, the, the ambiance. Um, but it was a market that was very seasonal. I didn't understand that. New York, it was 365 days a year. Here it was about four to six months a year of, of people really spending money at this type of a restaurant. Um, and and I, I didn't have the capital to really withstand that. So, um, so it failed. Now Paul has to go, what is he going to do? Um, I lost everything. Um, and I so I had to go and find a job. I went back to my roots, which were math and computers. And I uh, a friend of mine had a problem uh, with his company. And again, without getting into it, because we only have 30 minutes, um, I, I, he asked me about, is there a solution to this problem? It was a telemarketing problem of calling people that didn't want to be called in, in the 1990s. And Florida had just passed a law that said uh, it was called the do not call list, which is now a federal law. Uh, this was the beginning of it. And he said, he was in the stock brokerage business. And he said, my stockbrokers are on the phone all day long, uh, dialing for dollars, so to speak, with telemarketing. And he said, if they call these people and they say, don't call me, they have to remove their names from the list. If they call them again, they're subject for a $10,000 fine. He asked me because I knew I had, knew I had some computer knowledge, um, is there a solution that we can automate this so that if they call any of these phone numbers on this list, it won't let the call go through and we won't be exposed to a fine. And I looked and I, I did some homework. I did some research. I found out nothing existed like this. But I said, I could do that because I usually say that about most things, whether I'm right or wrong. Um, I, I said, yeah, I could do that. And so I found a software developer. I found somebody who knew telephone equipment and we developed a little application. Uh, fast forward a few years, we developed this application. We sold to some big players um, a solution to that problem. Um, and it was picked up by AT&T and a couple of other telephone manufacturers as kind of the tail wagging the dog. So now I had a very successful business and a very successful exit because I was my business was acquired by a, another telephone company and uh, it was a software solution. Um, and now I, I had gained 
some reputation as being some kind of a communications consultant. And so um, as a result of that, a company relocated me to Atlanta. And now uh, I'm in the years uh, 2000. And so we're, we're fast forwarding here a little bit. Um, and so I am working for a company that was coming out of the engineering stage into the sales cycle of a communications product. And they asked me if I could take that product to market for them, identify their customers and do the sales, manage the sales and the marketing. Um, and it was an, an industry that um, was engaging customers through trade shows and industry events. Again, something new, something interesting to me. So I took the job. Um, I did very well for them. There was a company that was much better than our company. When I say better, it had a better product mix. It had better technology. It was a Russian company. I'm not going to get into politics today. Um, the, yeah, the, please. The Russian, peop the Russian people, like people of, I think, any country, um, and I definitely don't want to get into any political conversation here, but uh, the people are generally wonderful people. Um, their government sort of screws everything up. But um, the people were wonderful people. And so we were frenemies, if you will. And at the end of the day, we'd go out and we'd have a couple of drinks. And those boys can stereotypically drink a lot of vodka. Um, and we would have a couple of cocktails. And, and they would say to me, hey, hey, Paul, we walked out of one show and they said, you just landed that account with Motorola. We all know that our technology is better than your technology. How did you get that deal? And we could not. Because trade shows, people of the same products usually stand next to each other with their exhibits and stuff like that. And the same people are kicking the tires of all these vendors. So I won this large deal with Motorola on behalf of my company. And I responded with no disrespect. I responded to them. I said, well, the answer is you're Russian and I'm not. And what I meant by that was not a cultural or a political thing. It was the fact that Americans like to do people who speak their language, who talk the way they talk. Um, it's just a personal thing. It's, uh, it has nothing to do with the technology. If the technology is as good or maybe as good, and that really was a big lesson that I learned um, in just building relationships, that it's really most sales, most businesses will be successful based on the relationships you build. Um, sure, you want to deliver a good product. You want to solve somebody's problem, and you want to make sure that you're being a trusted resource and not um, selling them something they don't need. But ultimately, it's a relationship you're developing. And that's the most important thing. Um, I think it's the most important thing in life. Um, in that time that I went from bankruptcy back to stardom, so to speak, it was only because of the good graces of the relationships I've had since I was born with people who helped me financially and who had confidence in me as much as the confidence I've always had in myself that I would get through this to the next phase of my life. And so relationships is what it was about. Once again, this company, the Russian company, offered me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I went to work for them. And it was a relationship that lasted 12 years. I'm now at 2012. Wonderful relationship. I licensed their technology to all sorts of companies. I licensed their music technology to Apple, their uh, uh, GPS technology they had. I licensed the Samsung uh, in their chips and the telephones that you all have. Um, so it, it was a very cool 12 years and a very profitable 12 years for me, licensing their technology to American companies. But I took the company as far as it could go. And China was coming up on the world stage. They were closer to Moscow um, geographically. Um, so basically my time with that was up. And so uh, I relocated from Atlanta, which is where I lived at the time for those 12 years. And I really missed the beach and I missed the coast. And I had family in Wilmington, North Carolina. So we relocated in 2012 to North Carolina. Once again, I was there. What's Paul going to do when he grows up? Uh, now I developed a reputation of being able to take a foreign company's products and articulating 
their value to an American audience. And so what I did was, at that time, I was approached by an Austrian baby bottle manufacturer um, who was trying to find um, how to um, market their products and sell their products to um, to baby product stores and to um, young mothers and to um, uh, e-commerce, uh, through e-commerce or retail, um, just to identify their customers and get their product known. And so I took that and that company actually went to an exit also by being acquired by an American company. It was a very innovative design, uh, which is what I look for in something that is attractive to me. I look for something that is a real solution to a problem or is so innovative that it's a market disruptive um, product or solution or technology. And so uh, that was a good relationship that lasted a couple of years. Then I was approached by an Israeli company that was actually a customer of mine when I was with the Russian company. They had a media product they wanted to introduce to the United States. Um, it was a horrible product and I told them so, and I didn't think I could really sell it or find customers for it because the technology was not as good as some other things that were available. So that was a short-lived technology where I basically put myself out of a job because I told them I couldn't sell their product. And, uh, and then um, there was a, a Chinese company that had a headband headphone for children uh, they approached me and I, I took their product to market, um, helped with licensing and with other things. Uh, and all these things I was, I was also learning um, on the go with a lot of things that create that help that company find its audience. And I was learning a lot. So these things were always interesting to me. Uh, my wife and I were not very lucky. Uh, when I say not very lucky, we, we were not fortunate enough to have children um, and uh, married 30 years. Um, so we went the puppy route. Um, so our children are the four-legged variety. Um, and again, um, while I wish we had children, um, uh, dogs do not ask for the car keys and there's no college fund required. Right. Um, so they've been, they've been a wonderful part of our lives, but they take a lot of your income. Um, there's a, they have the same medical bills that we have and they have the same needs for food and, and nurturing and, and, and all of that that goes along with caring for a life. Um, so we're always searching for things dog related. Well, I found this product, called, which was a self-service dog wash that was manufactured in Australia that I had never seen anything like it before. It seemed pretty cool. It was like a vending machine for washing your dogs. $10 for 10 minutes. You wash it. You get conditioner, shampoo, a dryer, um, a really cool machine. And so I approached them in Australia and I said, what are you doing in the United States? I've never seen this before. And they said, well, we never wanted to bring it. It's 800 pounds. You can only bring so many of them over in a container to the United States. We never really wanted to go into that market. We're doing very well here in Europe and Asia um, and Australia. Um, so, um, so I said, well, I'll, how about if I buy uh, the product for, uh, and take the rights to it uh, in the United States? Um, and so we made a deal. Again, fast forwarding a little bit. I took that product to market. I did very well for a year or two. Um, but I told them, just like they said to me at the beginning, this is a very heavy product to be importing from Australia by boat to the United States. If I was going to be successful and scale this particular type of product, I would have to find manufacturing in the United States. Right. So I found a manufacturer. Now, I found a man I did too good a job because I found a company that was so in love with the product that they wanted to manufacture it and they had a sales team and everything else. So basically they bought the company and put me out of a job. And so uh, now I'm not crying. I made very, I did very well financially and I, I had a good buyout clause. Uh, but at the same time, um, I was out of a job with a product that I really loved. Um, so I retired once again, as I had for several times in this story. And I was uh, sitting around and another company, a German company, approached me with a vertical printing machine. This is back in 2018. Um, and once again, 
Never saw anything like this before. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I have no printing background, no signage, no technology background for this type of hardware, but it delivered art to walls um, and it printed art on walls. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, It was like an inkjet printer on steroids. My mind was going a mile a minute. I thought this was a great machine uh, that other people could be put into business doing. Um, But I learned a long time ago in the story I've just told you and your audience that I no longer wanted to be a commissioned salesperson. If I ever found something I really liked, like that dog wash, I was going to own it. I wasn't going to be a hired gun um, and then be knocked out of the ballpark from it after I succeeded. Um, And if I failed, like in the restaurant, I wanted it to be my failure. If I succeeded, like the first job I had, I wanted to take the risks and get the rewards for it and take the beating if it didn't work out. Um, So... um, So the conversation with this German company broke down because they wanted me to be a commissioned salesperson and bring that product to market in the United States. And I said, I don't do that anymore. You got a cool product, but this isn't for me. But I hung up the phone and usually I say to my wife, I say, hey, honey, come take a look at this. And and she usually doesn't come into my home office and look at what I'm talking about. Instead, she cuts cuts up my credit cards and changes the passwords on my (laughs) bank account because she goes, here we go. Paul's going to invest in something crazy again. And so uh, this time she looked and she said, hey, that's pretty cool. You think you could do something with it? Go ahead. So she gave me her permission. Um, And uh, so I bought the company. Um, Actually, I didn't buy the coal company, but I bought the rights to the entire Western Hemisphere um, and the manufacturing rights and everything else that would go along with it. Um, And that was in 2019. Now, I wasn't the smartest kid on the block because I got my first shipment of machines in hand in December of 2019. In January of 2020, after investing a substantial six-figure amount in this business, um, the world stopped with COVID. And here I was with a machine that nobody had ever seen or heard about before, a vertical printing machine that puts artwork on walls um, and indoors, outdoors, any wall surface, really cool machine that nobody ever heard about. And so I'm trying to put people in business using this machine. And it's not like having a Starbucks or um, a McDonald's or, or a plumbing or a painting business or franchise where you could see it and you could touch it and you can feel it. Nobody could see this because they're not traveling. Um, so what I did was, whereas everybody was laying people off and working remotely during those first 10 months of 2020, I started hiring people. And I started building the company, building the technical support team to learn how to use these machines, to learn what their capabilities were, how to support them. And I hired a social media team to introduce this through Facebook and YouTube and TikTok and our own website um, uh, and Instagram and showing people what the benefits of this machine were. Um, Some people who might be entrepreneurial, some people who might have a business like a painting business or graphics art business that might see this as an additional revenue maker for them. Uh, but trying to find out who would be the customer who wants this. And I spent 10 months doing that before I got my first customer in 2020 in August. And now fast forward to today, um, in only 37 minutes, I've done my 72 years. Um, so and, and today I've got 135 customers and a customer means that I put somebody in business using our machines. This year I was awarded the Entrepreneur of the Year Award um, for 2023 by the local business journal here in Wilmington. Um, it's called the Coastal Entrepreneur of the Year Award, which is awarded to one company that judges are asked the question, what would you invest $100,000 in over anything else? And of the several hundred applicants for this award, they picked the wall printer. Very proud of that. Um, very proud of the fact that we put 
130 people into business using our machines. And we're growing from here. I built up a really good team and uh, life is good. And that's where I am today. Paul, you are a, a man of the world. Uh, I am so glad that uh, our audience uh, and myself, uh, that we were able to get to know you today. Uh, this is a first. Uh, this is the first episode where I've asked one question and it lasted for the entire episode. But I'm so glad that we did because you taught us about relationship management. You talked about the value of, of hard work, of perseverance. You talked about the fact that uh, it's not a hockey stick. It's not always up, 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 that there are downs. Uh, in in our lives that you have to navigate through, uh, you know, I, I I could I could go on with the with the lessons that you've taught uh, our our audience uh, today. So I thank you so much for being on the show, uh, Paul. Last question, and you only have twenty seconds. But where where can people get a hold of you? Get a hold of me on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. If you want to talk, you want to tell your story, you have something you want to. I like, uh, I'm a mentor at the local University of North Carolina, yep. their Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. I like doing give back, helping people on their journey. Um, if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn is the best way to do it. If you really do want to know something about the wall printer, go to thewallprinter.com and you could learn everything there is to know in about 30 seconds on that website. Um, but I, I would, I appreciate it, Andy, the opportunity to talk to you. Um, I don't, uh, yes, I'll leave it at that. Uh, so, so appreciative, Paul. Thank you so much. My name is Andy Tempty. This was a very special episode of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm so thrilled that we're able to bring this to you. Uh, we're available on all the major streaming services, uh, as well as on YouTube. On YouTube, you're going to be able to see the results of this wonderful product, the wall printer. Uh, you've met Paul Barron today on the show. Please like, subscribe, rate, and share this public good with your colleagues and your friends. Today's episode was produced by Nick Tempe. Thank you.